Hey guys, uh, great to have you here this morning. I'm Greg, I'm one of the leaders here at Sanctuary. I'm just gonna jump right into it. 10 years ago, I started running half marathons. I ran my first one right here in Providence. Some friends came from out of town to run it with me. We carbo-loaded, we played Eye of the Tiger, we got pumped. The day was perfect. It was a high overcast, the air was crisp, and I ran the best race of my life. The last mile was a mystical experience. And when I crossed that finish line, I was hooked. So my wife, Sarah, and I were headed to New York later that summer for a wedding. It was on the day of the Brooklyn Half Marathon, so I registered. I was so confident about the race that I gave Sarah my keys and my wallet and my phone. I didn't want anything slowing me down. It didn't occur to me at the time that these were my only way of getting back to Manhattan without Sarah. But no problem. I'd just meet Sarah at the finish line. All I had to do first was run 13 miles. But that was easier said than done. It was the same distance as last time, but this time the conditions were totally different. It wasn't spring. It was full on summer. The air wasn't crisp. It was hot and muggy. The sun wasn't shielded by clouds this time. It was beating down relentlessly. So for the first six or seven miles of the race, I was okay. I was running through a park. There was shade. There was wet grass. It kept stuff cool. But then came the second half of the race. I'm seven miles in. I'm starting to feel winded. And then we leave the park. The second half of the race was a straight shot down Ocean Parkway. It's this huge multi-lane concrete thoroughfare. It's so wide you could land a jet on it. And it was five miles due south down that thing. It felt like 12. And all I could remember was heat. Heat from the sun, heat from the pavement, heat everywhere. My sweat wouldn't evaporate. There was no escape. So as I kept trudging along, I started looking around and I started seeing people quit duck out of the race. It was demoralizing. These were people that had trained for this. And all I wanted to do was quit too. You know, sometimes in a race, you get good conditions and sometimes you don't. Sometimes the air is muggy. Sometimes the sun is hot. Sometimes you're only halfway through the race and you're totally wiped out. It's it's not just true in a physical race. It's true in life too. It's true in the spiritual journey. It's true in our life of faith. And I think for many of us, it's true right now in 2020. You know, some of us are getting tired. It's funny, at the beginning of the year, long before killer bees and asteroids and our national rec reckoning on racism and COVID and face masks and quarantines, I remember standing in this sanctuary, which was full of people back then. And I said, I don't know what's going to happen in 2020, but I have this strange sense that we need to start training because God just might ask us to run a spiritual marathon this year. I wasn't wrong. So I'm here again in August, whenever this is, and I have another prediction. 2020 is not going to get any easier. In fact, I think it could get harder. 2020 is not going to end on New Year's Eve. The ball drop in Times Square is going to be weird this year. And not just because there's no kissing of strangers, but because 2020 is not 
going to end on New Year's Eve. 2020 is not going to end until we're probably halfway through 2021, right? Awesome. But you know, in marathons at some point, most runners hit something called the wall. It's not a literal wall, but it's a place where physically, psychologically, metabolically, we just aren't sure if we can keep going. Some of us in 2020, some of you guys have already hit the wall. Others of us are doing okay so far, but the wall's coming. So what does God want to say to his people when we're about to hit the wall? Or if we already have? That's what I want to talk about today. And I want to look at the book of Hebrews. I've been reading Hebrews, the whole thing, over and over. You know, sometimes we preach on a passage, but God has actually laid this entire book on my heart. Because it's a message for a group of early followers of Jesus who are hitting the wall. So for 11 chapters, the author of Hebrews, and we don't know who it is, it's anonymous. I think it's either Priscilla or Barnabas. Either case, that'd be cool. And in either case, the author spends 11 chapters building up to this moment in chapter 12 that's really the core payoff and exhortation of the entire book. And it comes as a metaphor, the metaphor of a race. So I want to read this. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So according to Hebrews, our whole life is a spiritual marathon, and we're the runners. And the, and the, the, the passage continues in verse 3. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, not only does Hebrews portray the spiritual life as a race, but it's a long race right? Somebody say long race. It's a race in which we will be tempted to give up. So what does God want to say to us as we prepare to hit the wall in this race in 2020? First, Hebrews says that we're to expect that when the race gets hard, we'll be tempted to turn back. When the race gets hard, we're going to be tempted to turn back. I was tempted to duck out of that race in Brooklyn. And the Christians in the first century to whom this letter was addressed, they were tempted to turn back too. Unlike Judaism, Christianity in the first century before Constantine was not a protected religion. So when these Jewish believers began professing their faith in Jesus as Messiah, they lost the state protection of their status. So for example, while Jews didn't have to offer sacrifices to the emperor, The Christians had no such protection. And so because of this, they were persecuted. In chapter 10, uh, the author writes, remember those earlier days when after you've received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew 
that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. See, there was this long season of struggle. The believers did okay for a while, but eventually they were tempted to throw away their confidence. They began to wonder, hmm, this is getting hard. What if we just tried to go back to how things were before Jesus? What if we, you know, what if we kept worshiping God, but we just got rid of the Jesus part? And this is why the letter to the Hebrews was written. And the author over and over compares the situation of these first century Hebrew Christians to the situation the children of Israel faced in the wilderness. Now, if you know the story, Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt, led across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, to the edge of the promised land. And God said, keep going. I'm going to give you the land if you keep going. But they were afraid. And they refused and they turned back. And because of this, they wandered in the wilderness 38 years until an entire generation died. See, Israel wanted to turn back in the wilderness. The Hebrew Christians wanted to turn back in the first century. And guys, we will be tempted to turn back to. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not saying that we're going to renounce Jesus on Twitter or question the existence of God even. I'm not saying we're going to stop praying every now and then or giving or reading the Bible. But here's what we will be tempted to do. We'll be tempted to push pause. We'll be tempted to hit snooze on our relationship with Jesus. We'll be tempted to do what bears do. You know what bears do. They like to hibernate from Jesus, from his kingdom, from our calling. Let me share three ways I think it's possible for us to hibernate this year. First, we can hibernate from worship. We can hibernate from worship. It makes sense. Worship is hard in a pandemic. We can't meet here together safely. Many of us don't love virtual church or Zoom church. I don't. I'm probably watching myself right now, struggling to stay focused because there's kids screaming in the kitchen. There's dogs barking at my neighbor. Some of us are tempted to ditch virtual church and play hooky. I've already done it. I'm not proud. We don't want virtual church. We want non-virtual brunch. There's nothing wrong with ditching virtual or digital stuff, except that for many of us, nothing is taking its place. And if we're not careful, the worship room in our hearts will begin to sit empty and gather cobwebs. And here's the problem. Worshiping God is not extra. Worship is the reason we were created. It's what makes us human. We were made for intimacy with God, for worship. But when things get hard, we'll be tempted to turn back from worship. Second, we'll be tempted to turn back from community. It makes sense, right? Totally. Community is hard in a pandemic. It's complicated. It can even be dangerous. The easy answer is Zoom or FaceTime. But guess what? We're sick of Zoom. There's a million reasons community is hard right now, but community is not extra. We were created to be in community. There is no other way to follow Jesus. Third, in this season, we're going to be tempted to turn back from our purpose, from God's higher purpose for our lives. Understandably, God's mission and higher purpose feels kind of like extra credit right now. 
We turn back from reaching out to neighbors. We turn back from serving others. We turn back from telling people about Jesus. The problem is that purpose and mission are not extra. The renewal of all things is not extra. Telling people about Jesus is not extra. Guys, people need Jesus in 2020 as much as they ever have. So when we look back on this year, and I know future generations will, and they'll ask, what was the church doing in 2020? And I just hope we have a good answer. I hope our answer wasn't, we decided to hibernate until following Jesus got easier. But we are tired. We're exhausted. I was so tempted in that race in Brooklyn to turn back. And you know, it's okay to be tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. We just need to be aware of how we're tempted. Just invite, and this may feel weird to you, but I just want to invite us to invite the Spirit right now in the quietness or the loudness of wherever you're watching this to show you where are you tempted to turn back or to give up in 2020 on worship, on community, on God's mission and purpose for your life, for the church? Where are you feeling the resistance? Lord, show us. Where has our strength or resolve run out? Where have we given up? This letter to the Hebrews is one extended word of encouragement and exhortation in response to this situation of people hitting the wall and wanting to turn back. And here's the word that the letter brings, both in the first century and to us today. Don't turn back. Don't turn back from Jesus. Don't turn back. There's two reasons Hebrew gives us why we can't turn back. The first is this, Jesus is better. He's better than anything we could go back to. He's better than anything we could replace him with. He's better than anything that Hebrew Christians could have gone back to. The author spends like nine and a half chapters in the book proving this. I'll spare you all the arguments. I'll land on the conclusion. Jesus is better. And guys, Jesus is still better than anything we can go back to in this wilderness season. He's better than comfort. He's better than our 401k. He's better than Prime. He's better than Netflix. He's better than DoorDash or shopping or manicures or vacation. He's better than beer and wings. He's better than whiskey and cigars. He's better than the Democrats winning the election. He's better than the Republicans winning the election. See what I did there? He's better than human friendship or human love, or even human justice. These can all be good things, but none of them, none of them can take the place of Jesus. Holy Spirit, search us right now. Show us what are we looking to instead of you? Jesus, where are we tempted to try to replace you with something else? We can't go back. The second reason we can't turn back, according to Hebrews, is that our relationship with God is meant to go in one direction, forward. God is calling us forward. In the wilderness, God called Israel forward into the promised land by faith, but Israel wanted to turn back to Egypt. And so God swore in his anger, they would not enter his rest. And over and over, the author of Hebrews says to the first century, Jewish believers, Jesus is calling you right now. Don't reject him. Don't refuse him. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. 
Hebrews says, my righteous one will live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk. If he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But why? Why doesn't Jesus just let us turn back? Think of it this way. What if on the night I proposed to my wife, Sarah, while I'm down on one knee in a fancy restaurant with, my, with a diamond ring held out and all the eyes in the room on me, what if Sarah had said to me, actually, that's very sweet. But you know, it was less complicated when we were just friends. Could we just do that instead? Could we go back to that? How would you feel if you were me? That's how Jesus feels when we want to turn back. Right now, in the wilderness of 2020, Jesus is actually calling us closer. We may not realize it, but he's calling us to draw near. And if we turn back to anything, whether whatever it is, money, Netflix, alcohol, another life script that doesn't have Jesus at the center of everything, it's never a neutral thing. When we hibernate or push pause on our relationship with Jesus because it's getting hard, it's not neutral. It's actually a rejection of the one who gave everything to be in relationship with us. On that steaming hot day in Brooklyn, Sarah was waiting for me at the finish line. And if I wanted to be with her, I couldn't turn back. I had to keep running. And we can't turn back. Jesus is waiting for us at the finish line. We have to keep running. So what does that look like in 2020? What does it look like to keep running? Hebrews shows us a couple ways. First, we have to draw near to God in worship. In chapter 10, it says, therefore, let us draw near to God. It's a call to lean into worship and intimacy with Jesus. It's what God wants most. And it's also good for us too. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. In John 7, Jesus says, come to me, you are thirsty and drink and streams of living water will flow from within you. We need to carve out space for God, for personal worship, for intimacy with him. That's how we keep running. We schedule and we prioritize time for God. Second, we keep running by holding fast to Jesus as our hope, as our only hope. In Hebrews 10, it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. We need hope. Some of us are struggling this year because the things we had hoped in failed us. Others of us are tempted to set our hope on something other than Jesus, whether that's a vaccine, a V-shaped rebound in the economy, or any particular outcome in the election. 2020 has been a strange and brutal gift to us, if we can receive it. It can disillusion us in a holy way about the things we're tempted to hope in. So it can help us realize that our only sure hope is Jesus and the coming of his kingdom, and the resurrection from the the dead and the life of the world to come. So we keep running by fixing all our hope on Jesus. And finally, we keep running by encouraging one another. The text in Hebrews 10 says, consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. When we hit the wall, one of the most powerful things that can happen is to be cheered on. 
So the day I ran my first half marathon here in Providence, my friend Steph ran her first marathon. And she knew that around 20 miles, she was going to hit the wall. So her dad, a runner himself, considered this question, how can I spur Stephanie on to finish the race? And he decided to position himself at the 18-mile marker. And when Stephanie came by, he literally jumped into the race. And he ran with her for the next five miles until she hit the wall and until she pushed through. And because her dad got in the race, Steph finished strong. We can't run this race alone. So let's be intentional about spurring each other on. Right now, um, we have a friend, a lot of us have a friend that's like halfway across the country who's hitting a wall. A bunch of us are praying for her. But, you know, Sarah and I decided the other day, we're actually going to put Sarah on a plane to go visit her. Because sometimes that's what it takes. We need to be intentional about encouraging each other. Hebrews 10 says, don't give up meeting together. You can't encourage each other if you don't meet together. Meeting together is not easy in a pandemic, but we can be intentional about it if we're created, even if it's in small groups, even if it's outside, even if it's on Zoom, even if we have to mutually commit to join a pod, even if we have to make vows to be monogamous, quote unquote, in our social distancing. We can even increase the intensity of life together in 2020. And that's what happened to the Tuesday night altar prayer group. It's gone from a couple people sporadically showing up to six or eight people who are committed weekly to seek God for revival. We can't give up meeting together. So that's how we keep running, guys. We draw near to God in worship. We fix our hope on Jesus. We encourage each other. We all hit the wall eventually. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it's going to. But God's word to us from Hebrews is this. When it happens, don't be surprised. The ancients hit the wall too. Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Ruth, David, Esther. They all hit the wall. But by faith, they kept running and they have passed the baton to us. This is our race. So we can't turn back either. Jesus is better than anything we could go back to. We have a race to finish. We have a baton to pass to the future. We have to keep running. I wanted so badly to turn back when I got onto Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn. But in a way, it was a good thing I gave Sarah my keys and my phone and my wallet because without knowing it, I burned my escape routes. And I did hit the wall. But instead of turning back, I kept running. And I prayed multiple times every few hundred feet, God, help me keep running. I stopped at every water station. I drank as many cups of Gatorade as I could. And I thought of Sarah, who was waiting for me at the finish line. And eventually, I broke through the wall. I got my second wind. I finished the race. This is not just a year, friends. This is not just a weird year. This is the greatest race of our lives. May we, may you, run with endurance the race God has marked out for you, fixing your eyes on Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He finished the race and he waits at the finish line for us. We can do this.
Amen.